I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 1st, 2017. Coming up, we talk with astronomer Mark Bowie about modern-day expeditions to chase shadows. Shadows cast by small icy objects in the distant edge of the solar system. What can we learn from shadows? Stay tuned and find out. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. One of the difficulties in dealing with climate change is that irreversible effects can be delayed for many decades. For example, according to a recent study, even if humans could instantly turn off all emissions of greenhouse gases, Earth would continue to heat up to about two more degrees Fahrenheit by the turn of the century. This result is based on a new analysis published this week in the journal Nature Climate Change by scientists from the Max Planck Institute for Meteorology and the University of Colorado at Boulder. In fact, the research shows that if current emission rates continue for the next 15 years, it is likely that the planet will see nearly 3 degrees Fahrenheit of warming by the end of the century. The researchers call these long-term effects committed warming. During United Nations meetings in Paris last year, 195 countries, including the United States, signed an agreement to keep global temperature rise less than 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 2 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial levels, and pursue efforts that would limit it further to less than 3 degrees Fahrenheit by the year 2100. The new analysis is particularly interesting because it does not rely on computer model simulations, but rather depends on observations of the climate system to calculate Earth's climate commitment. Their work accounts for the opacity of oceans to absorb carbon, detailed data on the planet's energy imbalance, the climate-relevant behavior of fine particles in the atmosphere and other factors, Oceans are able to reduce warming a bit. Carbon naturally captured and stored in the deep ocean could cut committed warming, but by less than half a degree. The scientists emphasize that their estimates are based on things that have already happened and things that can currently be observed and measured. Any further carbon dioxide emissions will then add to that warming commitment already baked into our future. Which comes first for increasing death rates in the United States? Depression and despair or prescription opioid drugs? This question has become a scientific debate that includes CU Boulder sociologists. Specifically, CU Boulder scientists have challenged a Princeton University assertion that a recent drop in U.S. life expectancy is due to a loss of job opportunities, basically leading to deaths of despair. The CU researchers assert that the death tracks more closely with the increasing availability of prescription opioid drugs. Now, for where both groups agree. Both the Princeton and the Boulder research groups agree that average life expectancy in the U.S. has stopped increasing, especially among Caucasian Americans who lack a college degree. 
Both the Princeton and CU Boulder researchers also agree that many of these earlier-than-average deaths that are leading this trend are connected to drugs, suicide, and alcohol. But while the Princeton researchers blame these earlier-than-average deaths on a reduction of blue-collar jobs and a lack of social safety nets, CU Boulder sociologist Andrea Tilstra says the substance abuse deaths basically track with the substances themselves, starting with opioid prescriptions. It tracked alongside the availability of prescription opioids. So we saw in the late 90s when Oxycontin became FDA approved and readily available, that's when we saw the skyrocket of drug-related deaths. Oftentimes, and this, this is talked about in other literature outside of our own research, it's this idea of individuals first get the prescription painkiller, and then when their prescription runs out or they're no longer able to afford their medication, they seek that medication or that same feeling that's associated with, an, with a painkiller elsewhere. And unfortunately, within the United States, that seems to be through heroin, which is more and more frequently being cut with fentanyl. And so these, a lot of these deaths can likely be attributed to prescription opioids, but also heroin and fentanyl overdoses. Tilstra is very careful to point out that while the rise in prescription opioids does track with the rise of earlier deaths, it is not yet proven as a causal link. That is, we need more studies to determine whether or not prescription drug availability is a leading cause of these deaths. For example, Tilstra says, the rising rates of metabolic diseases, such as heart attacks, diabetes, and obesity, also are tracking with increasing death rates. The take-home point? It may be far too early to settle on sound bites, such as deaths of despair, that could ultimately lead to badly formulated national policies. Instead, it's a time for more rigorous study of how things like prescription opioid medications may be affecting U.S. death rates. Tilstra and her colleagues' research has been published in the International Journal of Epidemiology. We'll look at this topic in more detail in a future How on Earth Science Show. And joining us here in the studio today, my co-host, Chip Granditz. Thank you, Joel. On a lighter note, perhaps, we're in a time period where almost everyone on the planet knows they have a gut microbiome that teems with trillions of microbes. While top microbiome researchers emphasize repeatedly that microbiome science is too new to make any wide generalizations about just what makes a healthy microbiome, it still has generally been concluded that any animal that has a digestive tract needs their gut to have a diverse and thriving microbial community. Well, that's why the research of CU Boulder's Toby Hammer is such a surprise. In a recent study published in the journal Nature, Hammer has documented that some insects don't need any bugs within their gut. In fact, they seem to do better without them. Specifically, Hammer analyzed 124 species of wild, leaf-eating caterpillars and determined that none of them needed a gut microbiome. That's even though many other species of insects do need bugs in their digestive tract. For instance, termites really do need gut microbes to digest the tough cellulose they eat. Another obvious 
farmer of gut microbes are free-range cattle. To deal with the tough grasses they love to munch, cattle have so many fiber-digesting microbes in their gut, cattle dung contains more microbial DNA than plant DNA. In contrast, Hammer says, the dung of bats and geese contain almost no microbial DNA, which indicates their guts may be somewhat microbe-free. Well, all this hints that there is a whole new field of microbiomeness up ahead for whoever figures out just whose microbes goes with what meal and what species, and, and so on. As for Toby Hammer's caterpillars, he says he already has some answers. Hammer suggests that one reason the leaf-eating caterpillars don't need gut microbes is because, well, they choose leaves, which are super easy to digest. So Hammer calls these caterpillars juicers. We'll look more deeply into the juicy research of CU scientist Toby Hammer on a future episode of How on Earth. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. I'm here with my co-host, Chip Granditz. Astronomy is a science that depends on watching things happen in the universe that we don't have control over. Supernova, formation of stars, orbits of planets, and the spectacles of solar eclipses, like the one that will be visible from parts of the United States just a few weeks from now. So you can't grab a distant galaxy and bring it into the lab for experiments. So astronomers have to depend on studying the light that just comes to them from these objects. However, by studying just that light, they can learn much about the objects in the universe and how they formed and evolved. For example, studying solar eclipses have taught us about the corona of the sun and about general relativity. But to make those observations and measurements, and since the path of totality for eclipses is a narrow shadow that races across the Earth, and usually not near a telescope or lab, scientists have to chase the shadow and set up their laboratory in remote places to catch it. With us in the studio today is one such shadow chaser, Dr. Mark Bowie. For full disclosure, uh, Mark and I both work at the Southwest Research Institute. And we both play in a band together. Uh, I don't think we're going to do any open jams unless we run out of questions. But uh, Mark has organized a set of expeditions around the Earth to observe some peculiar, particular occultations. And he is here to tell us of the excitement and challenges of those observing runs and why were they important. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. I just I use the word occultations. Just to get us on the same level here, what is an occultation? I like to describe an occultation as, simply put, something gets in front of something else. In this <laughs> case, we have a star that's effectively infinitely far away, a perfect point of light. And in between is something that's in our solar system. And it's moving around the sun. And if you are in the just the right place, 
that object can get in front of them and block the star from view. And if you happen to be standing in the right place on the Earth, you see the star disappear for a fraction of a second. So that star disappearing for a fraction of a second, is it safe to say that what's actually happening is that a very, very, very faint shadow is crossing the Earth? Well, the shadow is the same depth as the star itself. So, yeah, it's a, it's a faint shadow. It, the cool thing here is um, it gives you the ability to make a measurement that is hard to do with something other than a spacecraft. And in particular, one of the main things we try to use this for is to measure the size of objects. And this, this tells us some basic fundamental properties of the objects. Okay, so you have something that makes a star blink out. How does that tell you the size of the object? Well, we, we're very careful as we're measuring the light from the star to measure how long the star is missing from view. Maybe it's five seconds, maybe it's half a second. But we put that together with the known velocity of the asteroid as it moves across the star. You put the velocity together with the time, and bingo, you've got a size. So you can measure the size of an object that you can't actually see the size of with a telescope. That's correct. I, I think it's just an amazing technique. And, and, and I have a whole bunch of school kids who's helping me study the Kuiper Belt, a project called RECON where we're using 11-inch telescopes to study the outer solar system using this very trick. All right, you use the term Kuiper Belt. What is the Kuiper Belt? The Kuiper Belt is, just think of it as Pluto's neighbors. <laughs> it's out there Pluto's beyond, family. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's out there beyond Neptune. And there's this region of the solar system. And typically, I sort of think of it as something that goes out to maybe 50 to 100 astronomical units, so 50 to 100 times further than the Earth is from the sun. And there's this whole population of primordial or undisturbed objects left over from the formation of our solar system. Why do we care about these things out there? Well, um, these are some of the best clues that we have to study that tells us about where we came from. We want to know how is the Earth formed? Is it inevitable that the Earth forms, or is it a special condition? Is the solar system that we live in, is that special, or is that just a consequence of celestial mechanics and, and chemistry? And we have already used the, just simply the distribution of orbits of these to come up with some really great theories that explains a, a, a huge um, range of phenomena that we see on in, on our solar system, just like the craters on the moon and things like that. So using these occultations, you can measure things about these very distant objects that you can't from the ground. And it's not just the size of the object you can measure. There are other things you can measure, like if it has an atmosphere, right? We've used, we've used the occultation technique for also detecting other things. As you said, first is size. If, if the body has no atmosphere, the star winks out instantaneously. It's really fast. Just a knife edge. Exactly. Then if it's got an atmosphere, like with Pluto, and that's how we discovered Pluto's atmosphere back in 1988, the star gradually diminishes in brightness. And how it decreases in brightness tells us something about the composition and temperature pressure structure of the atmosphere. It's an amazingly powerful data set. And there's one other surprise that you can get from this. If you have a ring that's around one of these bodies, when the star passes behind the ring, you get an extra little blip. Like a Saturn ring. 
Exactly. The Saturn's rings are very easy to see directly. And if you get a bright enough star, you can map out all the, the density variations in the, the Saturnian rings. But this is how we discovered the rings around Uranus and the ring arcs around Neptune and more recently rings around a, a small former Kuiper Belt object called Chiriklo that's orbiting the, between the orbits of Jupiter and Neptune. So the first discovery of Pluto's atmosphere, and actually even knowing some details about it, is from these occultation observations. That's right. Uh, we've, we've long known about the power and value of occultations, but the thing is that they can be difficult to predict. You need to know exactly where the star is. You need to know exactly where the solar system object is. And 100 years ago, we didn't know this so well, so these were hard to predict and hard to measure. And when we first did Pluto, we also were having a hard time predicting exactly where the shadow was going to be. So it's all trying to get very precise measurements of the star and the object, because the shadow could be off and you'd be standing in the wrong place. Exactly. Well, that happened to me in 1988. I had every telescope on top of the mountain in Hawaii known as Mauna Kea. I had every telescope there looking at Pluto, watching for the star to disappear. But those that went to Australia were the ones that won the lottery. <laughs> Neither one of us knew which one was going to succeed. But, you know, I ended up with just, you know, hey, I got some data, but it doesn't show anything. And they got, they got the goods. If you just joined in, you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Chip Granditz, and my co-host is Joel Parker. Our guest is Dr. Mark Buey, an astronomer at Southwest Research Institute, and he has been talking about observing stellar occultations, events when bodies in the solar system pass in front of a star and briefly block out its light, and what we can learn from those events. So, Mark, let me go now to the most recent occultation observations. First, tell us what is the object that you were chasing its shadow? The object we were just finished chasing is known as 2014 MU69. It also has another number, 486985. And someday, I hope, I hope, we get a name for it and we can stop using these license plates. <laughs> but this is an object that, that New Horizons is going to be flying to and passing by on January 1st, 2019. And the more we can learn about this object before we get there, the better off we are. Now, we, prior to 2014, we didn't even know the exist, about the existence of this object. So the spacecraft- But the is, spacecraft was already out there. Exactly, it's, it's hurtling through the solar system. It, it passed by Pluto and we immediately had to change course to go find, go look at this object which we didn't even know exists. So it was quite a, quite a race against time <laughs> to get that object discovered. And how did it happen to be in the path? The object is in the path because we looked where things have to be in order to be in the path. So very, very um, precise um, search of the sky at just the right place using the Hubble Space Telescope picked up this incredibly faint object. We'd like to have a big thing to go to, but this is the only thing that we could find in the region of space that New Horizons could get to given its available fuel. And so you needed to learn more about this object before New Horizons flew by. 
Yeah, so one of the key things here is so, so you're you're an inter interplanetary uh, tourist here. We all sure. are, and you want to take your pictures, but you got one shot. You're zipping by this thing. You're gonna put your camera up, take a picture. How bright is the surface? So you need to know how to set your exposure time so that you can get a good picture. But you don't get to do that until you're there. And if you guess wrong, then you fly all that way and you take a picture and it's either overexposed or you don't get it at all. So this is the very first thing is if we know how big it is, we know how bright or how much light the Hubble Space Telescope saw, and we put those two together, and we can tell you how reflective the surface is. Is it like coal dust, or is it like freshly fallen snow or somewhere in between? So we need to know the size and the reflectivity of the object so we can plan for the New Horizons flyby. So to do this, occultations. You can't do it from telescopes and get that information. So tell us a little about the occultation expeditions, what what was involved? Well, first of all, we had to figure out, well, where's the star? For that, we went to the Gaia space mission uh, operated by the European Space Agency. They're working right now on a census of all the stars in our galaxy to measure exactly where they are and how fast they're moving. Then we've got Hubble images of this object. We put those together, and it says that there's going to be a tiny little shadow moving across South America and Africa on June 3rd. And so we needed to get our telescopes in place there. July 10, there was another shadow. This one was kind of tough because it was just basically over water and the cloudy parts of South America. So there we got to use the SOFIA, the Stratospheric um, Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. It's a 100-inch telescope built into a 747 aircraft. That was amazing. <laughs> and then July 17, we get another shadow crossing southern um, South America in Patagonia. And for that, we picked a place named, known as Comodoro Rivadavia on the coast of Argentina. And we talked to a local geologist there and said, hey, we want to observe this, look for this shadow there. And he says, what? You're nuts. July <laughs> in Patagonia? It's really windy down here. It's really cold. Come back in January. That's a be much better time to do this. <laughs> but the this. universe doesn't conspire to your timing, does it? Exactly. That's <laughs> what I told him. And it's, uh, you know, you got to be there when the action's happening or you get nothing. So how many telescopes did you deploy? Well, this, even with all the best tools we can do, it's tough to do. If, at minimum, you just need to send two of them out. You get two cords two occultation traces, and you can figure out the size. But you don't know exactly where it's going to be. And I figured you need about 20 telescopes. In fact, we ended up sending 25 telescopes for a little bit of redundancy. Sending and, telescopes. Yeah, so we bought them here and got them delivered to Boulder. I spent a week with some help from students at CU and other office mates building these 25 um, telescopes building, getting crates made, put them in the crates, ship them halfway around the world, dealing with all the customs and logistics. And by the way, we had to do this and all in the course of about a month's time. All of this logistics to get telescopes in different parts of the world and everything like that. So you got them down there and in the right positions. I guess you're, you're looking for an object. You don't quite know the size, so you have to space them correctly, right? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a balancing game between 
how accurately you know where the shadow is and how big you think the object is. Of course, we don't know what that answer is, so it's kind of an educated guess. That's why you're guess. going there. <laughs> exactly, but you still have to make a decision. So for the first event in on June 3rd, we didn't know where the shadow was going to be quite so well, so we had a spacing between our sites that was about 10 kilometers, and we covered about a, a 300, 350 kilometer zone, and we missed. Duh. That that was really <laughs> heartbreaking. But we got more Hubble data, and we got a better prediction, and we were better ready, um, locked in for July 17. And there, our spacing between our sites was about four and a half kilometers, and we were only covering about 100, 150 kilometers of space. But I, it's still it's like, is this right? I mean, this is all just math up to this point. We don't actually right. know what we're doing. <laughs> But um, it worked out. We got five of our 25 stations, saw the star disappear. There was a lot of happy people I, in that room. That, that <laughs> moment was a lot of celebration. So you, you got five different telescopes that saw different, basically, cords or paths across the object. Right. And I know you're still sifting through the data, but do you have any preliminary results? Uh, the object exists. <laughs> good. Our we saw orbit it. is right. really good. <laughs> we don't have to panic for New Horizons. Where it's flying is a good place to go, so keep doing it. Um, the results could have been very simple, and I could tell you exactly what we saw, but they were not simple. They were very complicated and confusing, so we're really digging into the data to try to figure out what the heck is it that we saw. But it's, it's really cool because, hey, let's go have a look at this thing. <laughs> and we've got a spacecraft on its way. So 18 months from now, we're going to see what kind of a weird beast this is. We'll give you a little bit of a preview once we get through the data. But uh, it's been a very exciting summer. Well, it sounds like we'll need to have you come back before New Horizons flies by after you sift through the data to give us a little more of the results that sound so tantalizing. I'd be happy to. Well, that was astronomer Mark Bowie from the Southwest Research Institute talking to us about the expeditions to observe the stellar occultation of the distant icy solar system object 2014 MU69, or to its friends, 486958, which is the next target of the New Horizons mission. Thanks for coming on the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Alejandra Soto. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from King Crimson from the appropriately titled album Starless and Bible Black. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Chip Granditz.